2: I stay with Seth Fidel I'm coming at you once again with Michael Graney and Don Brohan of the Economic uh, Center for Economic and Social Justice, Mia Copa. And if you like their swag, I got their Owned or Be Owned t-shirt on, which probably will get you to some questions if you walk it in the shopping markets uh, in your local uh, areas, which they are. I, I do like this one. I like the orange. Uh, kind of reminds me of WWF the, when Hulk Hogan went bad, the New World Order group, but <laughs> uh nah, this, this is this is solid good, good thanks you guys for uh putting it together
3: i don't uh, buy it though don man. was walking down the street in dc with an owner beyond t-shirt and some people were stopping her says oh i love that i'm
2: not sure they knew what it meant but they loved it
1: <laughs> yeah well, I was, did, I your
2: follow-up what did you vote for then
1: yeah. <laughs> ownership <laughs> I was just gonna say, you look really good in that T-shirt, Steve.
2: Oh yeah, I I, I do know that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Quite it would look better if the I, orange I this, what's really this for different. you and I.
2: I'd make this look good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> just try walking down the street sometimes. See what kind of reaction you get. <laughs> It is a conversation starter.
2: Oh, no, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I like this. And today we're, we're uh, recording on the 2nd of November, so it is election day and most everywhere in the United States. And that'd be great to walk into a election. Might wear that into the election booth and go see what someone says. Oh, what does that mean? Well, what did you vote for today? <laughs> did you vote to be owned or be owned?
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, funny that you mentioned that because that whole issue... Uh, own or be owned, relates to what we're going to be talking about today.
2: That's Um, right. What are we talking about today?
1: We're talking about the five levers of change, the things um, in human society that can bring about cultural, economic, social, political change um, uh, at a point where crises are occurring. And uh, we want to emphasize some of the, the, what we would say, the the five most significant and most powerful and most rapid um, tools for changing society. And so we don't become
2: David Letterman on a countdown. What are these five?
1: (laughs) Okay, these five would be education, politics, money and credit, tax policy, and technology. And while you grab a bite to eat
2: <laughs> that's nah, you're, okay. you're killing me. I have the, I have the screen off so no one can see that.
1: Uh, oh. <laughs> it's fun. Um, and the key thing here is all these things in and of themselves, they are social tools and they're morally neutral. It depends on how you use your tools. and it depends on whether you as an individual, and all individuals in society have control over these things or have some power or some choice or whether someone else is dictating that for you. And we can see, for example, in education, you can teach people a lot of different things and some of them are not going to be good for the individual or for society. And you can see this in destruction and division, hatred, war, all sorts of things. Politics, it's the same thing. Mike will explain more the, really the the roots of what we call politics, but in and itself is a way that people determine, you know, how rules are gonna be made, how resources will be available or divided up, um, many things. How individuals have a connection to the decision-making processes in society at, at various levels money and credit now that's an institution which few people really understand including the people in congress whenever they have the chairman of the federal reserve board of governors most of them are don't even know what to say they don't even know how to ask a question but we know that this is shaping not only this country but the entire world And again, this will tie into the idea of own or be owned. If you have access to money and credit of the right sort uh, or you do not. Tax policy, this is something also, um, it can bring about change by encouraging certain types of behavior or penalizing. Um, But the point of taxation Is legitimately is to cover the costs of government because, yeah.
2: See, I was going to say you you were kind of stuttering on is is, and I was trying to hit the right button back over. Your taxation is theft.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I know, and this is this is a word that triggers a lot of emotion. But we want to look at what you know. Is this something that is needed? Um, If you think that government is unnecessary, then. You know, there's no point in having taxation. If you think that it is necessary in order to make sure that um, people aren't victimized by their neighbors or whatever, or cheated or murdered or whatever else, then you need government there. And, um, And as it was once said by a founding father, the best government is that which governs least. But you still have to pay the cost to people who are working at the, you know, police, firemen, Um, you know, teachers, and then there's technology. And that's become something which um, has become a, a source of fear for people there in their future. And if you look at what technology, the logic behind it is never to make more work for people. The idea is to be able to do less work, hopefully using fewer resources. But again, the problem is to
2: live in a fantasy land and on your computer.
1: Yeah, exactly. So and so there's a moral choice here in how we develop it, who has access to it, who will control it. So that goes back to the whole question of do you own it? And if you don't, then whoever does own these things and that means control and have the rights to the fruits of They're gonna control you. So that's sort of an introduction to this particular show that we're doing today.
2: Yeah.
3: And I should emphasize that this particular show is the culmination of the entire discussion we've been having, you know, over the past the previous nine episodes of it, it assumes as a given that. We are going to be applying The principles of the just third way Of economic personalism the, the reason why so many people Look with fear on just about Almost every one of these you know, Economics, politics, money and credit Tax policy and technology Is because they're not approaching it From the right framework of analysis Which is, of course Since this is about economic personalism We're going to say economic personalism Every single one of these If it's done the wrong way We'll take you off and you'll see the disaster that we have, to, you know, created in our world today. Thank goodness this is a uh, spam call. <laughs> Speaking it's of election day, so they're going to be flooding in every minute here. I've been getting calls late at night that are nothing. But anyway... And this is another one of the things that economic personalism will solve. It will grant us each so much power that we can take out the stupid phone and we'll never get another spam call again.
1: Yeah, yeah right. Or
3: someone will invent a technology that when a spam call comes in, you press a little button on your phone and a loud shriek goes over the other side.
2: <laughs> I think the idea of uh, your car being turned off because you went five uh, kilometers too far is more uh, <laughs> more up to... The- more apt than that.
3: Well, actually, I don't like that one, but I, <laughs> do, I do like the idea of switching to something like hydrogen fuel so you don't have to hear people talk about, oh, we have to drill under your house and take your land away or do something else. Now, the, you want to talk about climate change? Well, let's talk about free energy or almost free energy compared to the fossil fuels, which probably should, we need those as a standby and a backup and an emergency. Why use them? Hydrogen is the most common element in the entire universe. And here I am talking about that rather than the five levers of change. Yes. <laughs>
2: well, that's because COP26 is going on and there's 400 private jets out there t- telling you how to, how to live while they do the complete opposite of what they want you to do.
3: Yeah, But the main point that I wanted to make is that this whole show assumes that you've seen the previous nine, and that you're with operating within the framework of analysis in which we're presenting these five levers of change. Otherwise, you'll just hear what we're saying and say, oh, well, we know all about that. The government takes care of that. Or we know how that works, especially the two, probably the most important two are money and credit and tax policy, the two most misused institutions in the modern world, in my opinion.
1: Yes, and I I would just like to comment that, as Mike was saying, depending on which framework you're starting from, if you are operating within what we call the wage welfare system, which includes every system and school of economics today other than economic personalism, whether it's uh, market-based economics or it's socialist or it's monopoly capitalist, Underlying those paradigms is the idea that most people will be able to earn uh, a living by selling their labor or maybe it's being taken away from them and they're forced to provide their labor. But otherwise, it's going to be the government will control or a few elite will control. And we certainly see there's now a partnership between the government and the top Mm 0.01%. So in terms of what ownership, when we talk about that, we're looking at what the owner is entitled to by right. So we talk about property and private property and why this is so significant is that will tell you who should be entitled to the fruits of what the thing owned is producing and who should have control over the thing that is producing. So, with that, if we look at education, for example, if you're being um, educated to be a wage earner or a wealth, you know, if that doesn't turn out a welfare recipient, um, and if, if the point of education is to teach you to be able to get it so that when you graduate, you get a good job, then the problem arises on several fronts. One is it's not teaching you the idea of Um, of being an independent, um, self-sufficient individual and family, it's saying you're gonna be depending on either a private employer or the government for you to be able to, to pay your bills, to feed your family, to have a roof over your head. So we would challenge the institution of education at all levels that it's really not teaching people to be free human beings, not uh, full human persons, so we want to look at that institution, and and you know when Mike mentioned the two most important, these are all important, but um, in terms of bringing about the most rapid pace of change, uh, money and credit and tax policy will do that the quickest, but always education is essential, that when you uh, shift to a new paradigm, people have to understand it, People have to make it theirs. It has to become part of the culture. So that's that's essential. So, you know, and similarly, politics, there's politics within a wage welfare system. There's politics within a truly uh, democratic economy and political system where people have this source of power through owning. And this is very key to what we're talking about with the economic personalism is We have, we produce with our labor and we produce with the things we own. And it's those things we own that are becoming increasingly more important, significant in terms of what's produced in the economy. So we can't ignore as much as the human person is really the the thing of ultimate value in within the social order. That's where power starts, dignity starts but we have to also see there's human beings as total beings. And then there's labor, which is uh, each person's capacity to be able to produce goods and services to be sold. And we know there's a wide range of abilities with you know your labor power and to a certain extent, you can get more education to improve it. But by and large, we, we are born with um, you know a certain capacity to from an economic standpoint capital however and this is touches on the technology aspect of this is constantly improving and now we see it's accelerating the improvements and when i say improvement it the goal is to reduce the amount of human effort toil resources so that's good if you're an owner it's not good if you're the person supplying the labor and you get uh, replaced so these things as we'll, uh Mike will talk more about, we have to look at it in terms of do you have power or does someone have power over you?
2: I thought Mike, Mike was just looking at it. I thought Mike. Yeah, just I'm going, okay, that. Mike,
1: it's your turn. Well,
2: on Don's <laughs> point, you talk you think about like uh cops back in say 1910s that were uh, traffic control they were they didn't have stoplights so they were in the middle street this that technology comes out and eliminates that job so why is that okay but say like the same thing happens at the uh, mcdonald's not say go to mcdonald's That's poison for you but you know you got the you got the kiosk there and that will eliminate the human workers which there's a, there was a big dive. We were getting chicken nuggets for the kids one day. And uh, I told her, I "said you know, as bad as I hate this idea of this technology coming in like this to eliminate the human person, I don't mind it at this because they were that bad. Um, but it's not, a, you know, that's going to eliminate a lot of people. It gets into UBI talk. And again, every time I talk to you guys, I immediately go back to Davos. Every every syllable you guys said, I'm like, yep, that's what you, if you guys, if anybody's listening is paying any attention, your radar is going off going, I understand what she's talking about. It's going back to this.
1: And she's not even bringing that up. I'm glad that you did, Steve.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have to save something for the next series. I mean, come on. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, no. the point I think, um, and you mentioned universal basic income and how uh, a group of the world's elite, they were selected and they come together to think out solutions um, to save the planet and to save the economy and uh, eliminate war. And, you know, I think the objectives are good. The question is, though, how they're going to go about doing that. And in none of the proposals was the idea of extending equal access to ownership of those things which are producing wealth and income in the economy more so than labor. So I think that, you know, your example of McDonald's becoming more automated, um, you know, frankly, I, I happen to like when I go to a restaurant seeing a friendly human face. But, you know, then again, think of the people who are working at McDonald's, how much they're able to earn or not earn, and how many hours of their lives are spent there, you know, when they could be doing something that they truly love. I really doubt that most people love working in a fast food restaurant for, you know, many, many hours. It's greasy, it's hot. You got customers who yell at you. You know, honestly, that's so Louis Calso, who developed the the um, the ideas uh, with Mortimer Adler of um, economic justice, defining the, the principles, system principles of economic justice, and also the methodology that would enable people who have nothing, no ownership of things, no uh, cash reserves, no savings, to be able to uh, acquire those new technologies and pay for them through the profits of the technologies themselves. So uh, he's someone who said that if a machine can do your job better than you can, own the machine. No, no one loves doing repetitive. <laughs> I don't care what they say. I don't think the people working, you know, farm workers who are out in the fields, or factory workers who are get standing on an assembly line doing the same thing over and over. I really doubt. I mean, there may be some who enjoy that, but my suspicion is most would be would prefer doing something else. So then the question is: All right, if um, you know, I, th- I think another thing is if you want a free market to give maximum choice to buyers and to sellers in terms of what they wanna provide and what they're willing to pay for something. The only way to really have a truly free market, you have to have justice in there. And the only way you can have justice is where power is spread broadly among every individual. And that way people will be truly free to make choices versus be forced by necessity to do things that they really don't want to do and it may be harming them, it may be harming their families. So, you know, your point about Davos is it's important. Who's going to make the decisions for us and for the world? Is it going to just be this tiny elite or will we be empowered and educated in order to make better choices, you know, for ourselves, our families, society, et cetera?
3: And then there's another little item that these people pushing for the UBI and the billionaire tax and all of these other things forget. It can't work. You know, it's very easy. Run the numbers. There's not that much money around. The vast amount of the wealth of these super rich is not in the form of cash. I mean, you don't see, you know, Walt Disney's Scrooge McDuck swimming around in his money bin filled with money. If you ask the super rich, how much cash do they have? It's actually very little. I would say that a lot of the super rich have less cash than we do. You know, the average person, you know, middle, an upper middle class, that sort of thing, even though I detest those terms. But it's in the form of their their ownership of assets. And this is where the bulk of their wealth is. In order to fund the UBI or the billionaire tax or anything, They have to sell their wealth, which they're not going to do. And you're talking about a financial collapse. If you dump that much equity on the market, you know, even over months at a time, this uh, the, it would make the 1929 crash look like a walk in the park because uh, you're talking a total financial meltdown because in order to, liquidate their assets, they have to sell them to somebody. Who has the money to buy it? Nobody, they're the rich. When the rich sell something, who can buy it? Nobody thinks of these things. The only real answer is not universal basic income, but put it in a slightly wrong way, universal basic ownership. Everyone has to have access to the opportunity and and access to the means to become owners of income-generating capital so they can be productive and generate their own income, not take income from other people. This is the only way an economy can really work. It sounds very well to say, oh, well, so-and-so has a billion dollars a year. His wealth grew by a billion dollars, most of which is not in cash, so we'll just redistribute that to other people so that they can – Get the consumption income they need. No, the only way to keep an economy viable is that is for everyone to be productive. And the only way everyone can be productive is to own capital because anyone can own not everyone can labor and not everyone's labor is even needed in a modern economy. It's ownership of the technology that's important. And that can only come about if you have the right monetary system, the money and credit, and the right tax system. And people are educated sufficiently to understand what the heck is going on. And of course, putting in politics, get the politicians and the country's leaders to help organize our institutions in the right way so that this can be done. This is in fact, the the job of the politicians is to care for the common good. And the common good is made up of all these institutions, this vast network of social habits, social tools in which we as human beings become more fully human or as Aristotle would put it, more virtuous. And we can't become more virtuous or more fully human if we don't have power and power naturally and necessarily follows property, not just any property. I mean, it's not ownership of consumer goods; it's ownership of capital goods, technology.
2: Are you telling me politicians are basically corrupt and they go up in D.C. Therefore, are they're for us, the people? Right? They're not. They're not. Surely, you're not saying they're going up there and making millions off of well,
3: us. let me. <laughs> The politicians are for the people, the collective concept, but the people is an abstraction created by human beings for human beings and has no has no independent existence apart from the human minds that create them. So the politicians for our own good have to control our minds, our lives, our thoughts, and everything else. Otherwise it won't work. I'm,
2: I'm being sarcastic. I know there's one or two oh, am I? out there. Yeah. <laughs> I was was thinking like Pelosi's making, you know, millions for being a servant of the people. I have uh,
3: no objection to them making millions, just not out of me.
2: Right, right, right. Just like, yeah, yeah, you want to make a million bucks, do it. Do it ethically, do it virtuously, things
1: like that. Well, and, and I think it's important to, you know, look at the mindset of basically two dominant ideologies, and one is elitism and one is collectivism. And let's start with the collectivists, which are, I would say that's largely um, influencing how policies are being made today. And it's becoming more and more collectivists because more people are becoming unable to earn their own uh, a decent living. So it becomes a question of who knows best for these poor, suffering people, and it's well, it's we, the politicians, and we can, you know, hire the experts, and we can develop policies to make sure that we give people just enough so they stay alive. So they get their minimum wage, they get, you know, whatever their uh, um, enough support to cover health and education and shelter. And so you take power away from the individual with the idea being, we know what's best for you. The other is the elitist who, for, you know, in various ways has made it to the top of the ladder. And sometimes it's, it is through uh, personal talent, you know, maybe a combination of good fortune. Um, It's never completely by yourself, even though some may think they're self-made, you know, men and women. It's always with other people involved. So they also are in a position where, well, they can be benevolent or they can be as selfish as they want to. It doesn't matter because they're, they have power. So the third, what, what we're talking about with personalism as described by Pope John Paul II, and and Martin Luther King, too. It's it's interesting. I'd I'd like to trace sort of the common origin of their thinking on personalism, is really looking at each human being as both a unique individual and a a member of society. And when you take away one of those things, their uniqueness, or their being part of this human family, you are really denying them the means to develop fully as a human person, which must recognize both aspects of human nature. So the only way really to do that is to make sure that every person has power is sovereign, but then you have the problem of all these billions of sovereign human beings, how do they interact with each other so that the result is constructive and positive and not destructive. And that is that is difficult because, I mean, part of economics, it recognizes there are a certain amount of resources available at any particular time. There's a certain number of consumers and producers, and it's not like we have everything immediately um, supplying our, our needs, you know, our infinite needs. This, you know, these things have to be produced. So you do have just the, you know, reality of life and how we create our systems. You know, they're never gonna be perfect, but they should do, aim to do what the good purpose they were designed for. So we're gonna be talking about the two main levers of change that we see um, if we're trying to move to a, a, a system of personalism or economic personalism, the two things that are gonna make the most dramatic difference quickly, and this is the basis of um, some legislation we call the Economic Democracy Act, is to look at those two particular levers of change and see how they can be directed towards connecting every human being to the processes of of growth, economic growth, and thereby be self-sufficient and be able to interact in politics in, you know, in a good way, not the way we're doing today, which is just becoming more corrupt and just more chaotic than ever. And people are actually losing interest in being involved unless things get so bad and they get so angry that that's when they get involved. But that's really not a good political system.
3: Yeah, that's what, I mean, what you're seeing is what Don addressed a little bit earlier was you've got Three things, all of which come under the heading of liberal democracy. You've got the collectivist form of liberal democracy. Uh, I get these categories from Alexis de Tocqueville, although we kind of gave our own names to them. Uh, the collectivist form of liberal democracy is that humanity as a whole is sovereign. Humanity as a whole has rights. And of course you see the problem with that immediately in that humanity as a whole is an abstraction. It's a creation of the human mind. And if you claim that humanity as a whole has rights, you know, an abstraction created by man is greater than man created by God, meaning that man can create more than God can create. This causes a little bit of confusion with collectivism and elitism or individualism is not much better because you still have an abstraction, this tiny elite that thinks they're better than everyone else. Oh, excuse me. They don't think it. They know it. And you have, and they may pay lip service and say, well, if these people had the guts and gumption to be as good as we are, uh, after all, when I inherited $30 billion from my parents, that proved how much I deserved it, didn't it? So that what you see in today's world is that, You've got the collectivist form of liberal democracy and the elitist form of liberal democracy merging because they both share basically the same assumption that somehow sovereignty resides in an abstraction, not in the human person. What we don't see enough of today or at all, as far as I can tell, is what Alexis de Tocqueville called the American form of liberal democracy that he, you know, uh, described in Democracy in America in the 1830s. The human person is sovereign. This is the basis of the personalism of John Paul II and Martin Luther King. It is the basis of what, with a few flaws, more, well, they were pretty big flaws, but what you saw in America in the 1830s where the individual was considered sovereign, if you are a white male over the age of 21 anyway. Uh, and What you see today is what the emergence of what Hilaire Belloc called the servile state. He put it in terms of capitalism and socialism merging, but we can put it in terms of the collectivist form of liberal democracy and the elitist form of liberal democracy finding common economic and political ground and forming the servile state. Not in the form that Hilaire Belloc saw where you'd be forced to work at a job whether or not you wanted to but that the state is desperately trying to find and create jobs for anybody who wants one. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a, it's totally focused on human beings as inputs to production or votes to get you into office, not as sovereign individuals who should have access to all the institutions of society and the, and to the means to, to use them according to the best of their ability, which is the f- basis of what we call Personalism and is applied in economic personalism in something like the Economic Democracy Act.
1: So I didn't know whether Steve wanted to ask the next question. Or <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you already went to it. it was, what
2: are the two oh, no, keys? Yeah, yeah so, yeah, so no, I was we... looking at it going, all right, well, you got the two keys money, credit, and tax. <clears throat> I would throw in and say, well, you got to have education and politics to get to the money, credit, and tax. Because if you get good statesmen in, and you know, I keep saying you know that whole uh, act locally, think locally thing. If, like today, if if good people running for a state, county, uh, city councils, especially the state legislatures, we get some good governors like in uh, Virginia right now. they hopefully that McCulloch uh, will uh, go the way of the dodo or do, dodo bird soon. You get guys in there with common sense and not trying to be basically like you know want to be authoritarian dictators then you can get good money and credit and tax policy going and I a mean, to me dc is gone so if you, you 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 we you see balkanization happening then you can fix money and credit and tax policies on a local level whereas everything's trying to go global and that's where you run into a lot like the imf guys saying they want digital currency and get rid of cash and you got the guys like COP26 talking about wanting to do carbon taxes, which one of them actually said that's not realistic to do. Um, so that, to me, I see that as education got to get people to know what the heck's going on to get them yeah. in politics. Then you can get the money, credit, and tax policies fixed. But yeah, they're key. But the other two are key to those key, right? Yeah,
1: you know that's a good point, uh, Steve and that's you know it's one of those chicken or the egg situations we're in that when you have a a really new idea new framework for living together it's it's formed you know it's not in people's minds it's it's not something that they understand immediately it takes as you say it takes education and then you have to get it into politics because ultimately um your institutions um and laws are what remains even after each of us as individuals have left this mortal plane. um, There's going to be these social habits left, these structures and laws that that is one of those social structures. And we want to have the right kind of laws that do the least amount of damage, but also make it possible for each person to access all of those uh, institutions in order to develop. So. You're absolutely correct, and you know we should look at technology also enables us to do things we could never have dreamed about even you know fifty years ago. So it is has tremendous promise, but it's also can be tremendously dangerous and even and you you mentioned these uh, cryptocurrencies or digital currencies uh replacing cash. Well, and that's going to get into, and we've had several shows on money and credit, why those are so significant. But the key thing is not so much the form of the money, it's what is backing the money. And what is backing today's money, this is every single country, it's government debt. So, what we're saying is, you know, you have to reflect reality, what has actually been produced, what will be produced, and how you bring new technologies into existence and who will own them. Because a key thing to remember is who has access to money will have access to ownership, both of pr- uh, present wealth and future wealth. And our system of money and credit. Is what we would call what's past savings based, that in order to, to get more, you have to already have. Um, it's also the notion, as Mike is you know, an expert in, the different approach to money. One is the notion that government creates money, the currency principle. Or the other idea, which is what we embrace, the banking principle, is saying. You you actually create money, anything of value that can be exchanged or money even getting more to the fundamental essence of money. It's a way of measuring value in transactions. You have to have a way of two or more parties coming to an agreement that when they exchange one thing for another, that it is of equal value. And so money becomes that that measurement. So if we think of money as, as Mike says, Scrooge McDuck sitting on his mountains of gold coins, yeah, that is one form of money, but we need to look at a form of money that can help grow the economy in um, a healthy way, meaning it is not concentrating power, it's spreading out power without taking away from those who now own that it's bringing about true production, not speculation. I mean, the, really, it, it makes me just shudder when I hear that, um, what was the, the coin, a coin digital currency based on the squid game, oh, yeah. how the value of that went from a couple cents to $30 to $1,000, and then it's below zero, okay, in a very short period of time if that's the basis of our money system we're cooked you know there's no reality there's no reality it's pure betting it's gambling we have to look at money as a way of bringing about new things new technologies that use less energy that use less polluting forms of energy that use resources I I think the idea for example this is what little I know, the idea of always making sure things get reused, that you don't leave pollution out there, you use that as a resource. And so they call it the circular economy. And I don't know if there's other aspects which we might not agree with, but from a physical science standpoint, it makes sense to me because it sounds like what nature does. Nature doesn't just leave things out there never to be used again, everything gets reused. So that's technological but it's also based on our philosophy of how we grow and then we have to know what is how are we going to pay for that and so that's our money system and then the tax policy and this is uh touches on some history of how the employee stock ownership plan got into law and became uh became popular to a certain extent um, and that was that corporations were encouraged they were they were certain incentives that were created for the ESOP, which no other method of finance has. There's a lot of things that we would change about it, you know, including the fact that it's in retirement law versus its own ownership law. But by enabling companies to finance their growth and be able to deduct not only interest expenses, but also principal, it's the only form of finance that will allow that and now you even have something more advanced which um, enables a corporation not to pay any corporate taxes but to pass through the earnings of the profits of a company to the owners and then they are going to be responsible for paying their personal tax so So like
2: uh, with money with the imf guy was talking about i guess the opposite we keep talking about owned yeah be owned He's literally come out saying we can't control someone that uses like a hundred dollar bill. But we can control if it's digital, how somebody can use if they're even allowed to use it, etc. If I go to Don or Michael and make a transaction and go, here's ten bucks and they trade it off, they can't control that part. But if it goes through a phone to a phone or something like that, that
1: can be controlled. Yeah, well, I think you know.
3: what, what you're seeing in today's system is a try, and Don used exactly the right word, form. What we see is a triumph of form over substance. In other words, take every one of the five levers of change. It's a education. Well, if you get a degree, that means you get a good job. Well, what is that degree in? What's it? What I mean? What did you learn? Can you uh, do you know grammar? Do you know math? What did you actually have to learn anything in order to get that degree that guarantees you absolutely a good job? I
2: learned where to get the good chicken wings and beer was.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <That's the start. laughs> lucky uh, politics. Well, everybody knows that if you have the vote, you have immense power, and you're a democratic society, and you're a free person, and everything's fine because. Voting is politics. Well, no, that's one form of it. But if you have no power yourself, all you're doing is selecting somebody with power to to control you, as you pointed out, and money and credit. If only the government has the ability to issue money and back it with its own debt, guess who controls all transactions or even the ability to make transactions? And if you switch to a completely digital currency that cannot be initiated by anybody except the issuers of the digital currency, as you point out, every aspect of the economy can be controlled by whoever issues that currency. I mean, form over substance. But if you have the substance of there, you know, the bank, what we call the banking principle is that money is how I exchange what I produce for what you produce at its heart. That's all that money is in the banking uh, under the banking principle. If there's no production, there can be no money. Oh. Well, Keynesian economics says exactly the opposite. Uh, and Keynesian, I, I once wrote a book that didn't get accepted because it was too controversial.
2: No, <laughs>
3: <laughs> Catholic Who's Keynesians think? and other mythical creatures. And I think you might be able to get that
2: published today, though. I think I know some people. It it needs a little bit of
3: reworking because I've learned a lot since I wrote it. Uh But one of the key features in it was, and and I got this from, uh, oh, darn it, I can't remember the scientist's name. But he referred to uh, cargo cult science. Now, if you know anything about the cargo cults, they are the weirdest thing you ever came across. They started in the late 1890s. But really hit their stride in World War II when in the South Pacific, there were certain islands in which the natives believed that what that God created all this, these wonderful trade goods like spam and Coca Cola and metal tools in his great cargo workshops in heaven. And the white people, the white soldiers and, you know, the Marines and the Navy had access, had secret code words. And secret prayers by which they could influence and God would give them this great cargo. And all you had to do was build these airstrips or piers and fake airplanes and cargo uh, uh, warehouses. And if you said exactly the right invocation, you would the cargo would come. Well, this is Keynesian economics. In, Keynes, in Keynesian economics, if you print up enough money and throw it around with the right rituals and say the right incantations, prosperity will come. Production comes from money rather than the banking principle and what we say in economic personalism is that, no, money comes from production.
2: I'm starting to think back. everything the video I sent you guys. Put it, push, push it out so it goes facing the window because it creates a vacuum. Make sure the paper's turned up, hit, hit the, Hey, you're just printing money up. Are you in banking? No. You know, he's not even in banking. No. He figured the whole thing out.
0: <laughs> well, what perhaps is- I should just take you through what we're telling them to do. Yeah, sure. I mean, right. I won't go into a lot of detail. No, That'd that's discreet, But this will mm. give you an idea of how quantitative Off easing works. Yep. Take printer out of box and mm. place on table with the out tray facing the window. The out tray facing the window. That's right. Load paper into the paper receptacle and place currency on glass tray F right check alignment by printing out a test page right go into copy settings and select double-sided and the number of copies you require how many would you suggest in the case of one of our clients it's 80 billion $120 $120 billion in the case of another client, and one client wants a trillion of these things. Can you get printers to do that? No, you can't. You're going to need a bank of them. I mean, it's a multi-printed you need some job. big ones, Yeah, right? big industrial strength. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Big like a Bofors gun, all facing yeah. the window. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Once you've ascertained um, that uh, you have the alignment correct, yeah. uh, you alert the banking sector, open the window, and press copy. And stand well back. Yes, you've got to stand well back because they can create a bit of a vacuum while reaching cruising height. Whereabouts? in the super fund industry very often. And you'd have to consider the wind direction too, oh, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, you don't you? want to be doing this upwind. No, because you'd be covered in pretend money, couldn't you? You're covered in what? Pretend money. No, this is not pretend money. This is real currency we're creating. But aren't you just printing it off? I mean, these are photocopies, aren't they? Excuse me. Dave, this is not going to work. Because I've just explained it to a bloke and he saw through it straight away. Are you in banking? No. No, he's not mm. even in the banking racket. Mm. OK, I'll try that. Try what? Have you ever heard of Stiltskin? No. Good, now we're getting somewhere. Pull up a chair. I'll tell you a tale.
1: <laughs> yeah, they won't understand banking and currency principle. Um, but I think it, it is important to look at what is what is money? What's the purpose of money? What is good sound money? and what is monopoly paper money. And what we have today is is really monopoly paper money that people have attached value to, but in their exchanges, they're not thinking about exchanging production, they're just trying to bid up the price. And so it, it becomes sort of a game of mu- musical chairs that Someone at the end of this whole thing is going to be left standing up and out of the chair Well, Mike, so Mike we... will love
2: this one. I gave this Indian guy when I was doing Uber uh, he was telling me he just got married. I gave him a miraculous medal said hey here's a congratulations uh, For getting married and he goes, oh, no, no, thank you very much. When you have this remember me. He gave me a ru- a thousand rupees I think toilet so paper is,
1: is more profitable than rupees. No, in rupees yeah. Oh, you you think
3: that's bad? The last when I took the the last business law course I took, you know, for, for review for my CPA, you know, continuing education, we watched a slideshow about the hyper oh, no, it wasn't hyperinflation, but the high inflation in Kenya. And one of the slides was the sign posted on a latrine saying, please do not use paper money as toilet paper. <laughs>
1: Yep, that's about it. That's about it. So I think the point that we want to make in you know, in terms of turning this into something practical, all these ideas we're talking about is going to take legislation. You know, otherwise it it's sort of hit or miss, and it's not going to be enough to change the way we operate as a society. And I, I think it's also important to realize that whether we like it or not, we are interconnected with the rest of the world. I mean, you can see the whole problem with supply chains just being shut down and you know the reliance on people in other countries to provide certain other things. And so as long as you're gonna have exchanges, you're gonna have money involved. So we wanna make sure that money, wherever it's used is backed by real production and that it's something that's accessible to every person. And we don't mean just throwing around cash. We're talking about money being in the form of credit, capital credit or credit to buy productive assets that is not based on anyone's past savings. This is created as production is needed to be brought into reality. That that becomes through our monetary systems, and this includes our central banks, it's brought into being matched with the needs of businesses to acquire more productive assets to grow, but to do so to finance their growth in ways that create new owners. So if the same people have access to new money and credit, the same people are going to own the new technologies, new assets. If more people are um able to have access to a sound money system and a sound credit system and that includes how you deal with risk of loans going bad and we have an idea you know that using capital credit insurance becomes part of a good system so that people the have-nots are not excluded because they don't have enough collateral okay this becomes a substitute for how you handle risk another form of collateral which is uh, capital credit insurance. So if we create the right money and credit system so that you're really creating money only for private sector needs to grow, not government debt, not gambling on Wall Street. And you do so you make this credit because really, if you look at who as as a human right, we have to recognize that ownership, private property ownership is a basic human right. We also have to see that if you need to have access, equal access to this, a- access to the means to become an owner, you can just say everyone has the right to be an owner. But you know, if you don't have a way of becoming an owner without taking away, you know, property rights from someone else, you're back at square one. But fortunately, and this is something Louis Kelso was, it was genius, pure genius. I think Mike, being the historian will say that he filled in a hole in terms of what the encyclicals were calling for that without it you would always be stuck in the old systems so really i think that people as they understand and are not intimidated by the idea of money and credit for the right purposes um, you're going to see a shift in just attitudes to an ownership culture which is one where people recognize, you know, you have power, I have power, we have to be responsible too for how we use our power. So that's also part of ownership, the notion of responsibility going along with rights, rights and duties. Yeah. So uh, that's, yeah, so I think um, I'll, I'll let Mike
3: uh... Well, what I was going to say is that what Don's been saying can be summarized. We We do you know, go into this in the book, Economic Personalism. But what you basically have today are three types of money, two of which are legitimate. One, the one that most people think is is around is past savings money, money that represents and is backed by existing production, you know, existing inventories of goods and that sort of thing. Uh, Then you have future save and that and past savings money is best used for consumption or speculation or gambling if that's what you want to do which qualifies as consumption because you're spending it uh two you've got future savings money this is the type of money that you want to use for financially feasible new capital projects and if used properly it can turn everyone into an owner uh, this represent this is Money that is backed by the present value of the future stream of income to be generated by the new capital and then can be paid back. You create money and then you pay it and then you pay it back and cancel it so that there's no inflation or deflation. There's always enough money in the economy to do the job, whether it's the past savings money for existing production or the future savings money for new capital investment. Unfortunately, what you have and it's growing in popularity, I guess is the right word, every day, is the no savings money. This is money issued by governments, backed by government debt. This is most of the cryptocurrencies. They just create a currency. Well, what's it backed by? Well, nothing. It's a pure commodity that we create out of nothing that you can use. And unfortunately, You heard us mention the the currency principle versus the banking principle. The banking principle is that money is a way of measuring transactions and of exchanging what I produce for what you produce. Money comes from production. In the currency principle, production comes from money, and money and credit are themselves a production, a, a, a commodity that somebody first has to create, usually government. And then you are permitted to carry out economic transactions. What's behind it? Oh, the government's word. So in other words, the people that are telling me what I'm permitted to do are also telling me how I can do it and if I can do it by controlling completely the money supply. This was Keynes's dream in his treatise on money, which was supposed to be his magnum opus until Friedrich von Hayek tore it to shreds, except Friedrich von Hayek missed the most collectivist and totalitarian thing that Keynes said, and he said it in the first couple of paragraphs of the two volume work, which is that the state has the power to re-edit the dictionary and determine what money is and what it's worth, and it can change it at any time it wants.
1: So that's how you control the marketplace. I do wanna make one quick point And since we mentioned tax policy, why is this so significant in changing the system? Well, today the tax system has largely become a way for government to redistribute from those who produce to those who are unable to produce sufficiently. It's not set up and it really, because it becomes a welfare state distributor it becomes a way or of necessity has to keep increasing taxes um, on those who produce at any level and it's usually the middle class who's really going to end up paying for most of these because the rich can hire fancy accountants and lawyers to send their money overseas yeah so it it becomes really the it's like when you talk about a nanny state that that term is it's actually becomes it's 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 it means something what we see the tax system as doing as i said you want minimal powers vested in the state just to make sure that there is order that the the uh, general wel- welfare is protected that every individual's rights are protected um, that we you know, we have security um, and it, it's basically, it's there to care for the common good as Mike said. But the problem is the way the tax system is set up, it has no impact or very little on changing the patterns of ownership. There is the ESOP, employee stock ownership plan, not option plan. The problem is that only covers corporate employees It doesn't cover public sector workers. It doesn't cover people in the military. It doesn't uh, cover uh, parents who stay home to raise children. It doesn't cover children. So you are pretty much excluding, you know, the majority of the population from the opportunity to become an owner. The ESOP works great. It proved that principle of finance that you can turn a non-owner into an owner without taking anything away from present owners. And it's all done on future profits of the corporation. The problem is most corporations, the way they're gonna finance their growth is basically keeping the ownership patterns within the people who already own. So that if you wanna become an owner, you have to go through that arduous process of working hard, saving, and then investing on Wall Street, which is just speculation. So it doesn't really turn the ordinary person into a real investor. So by using the tax system to encourage the corporation to pay out its profits and this, so it's actually a carrot. The carrot is if you pay out all of your dividends, all your profits as dividends to the owners, then you get to deduct that. So the corporation could actually end up not paying any corporate income tax, which is a good thing even for current owners because they're paying double and triple tax. So this, this is a. Um,
3: no, no, right now, so I'm not off camera, but.
1: Whoops, Mike is talking. Um, so th- this is something which we can look at in terms of creating incentives. Um, so that businesses will, you know, they, they may not immediately feel comfortable with the idea of sharing future ownership opportunities with anyone, including their workers, but. As this becomes more obviously a a better way to finance growth, I mean, it's more cost effective and Mike is a CPA, he can show you the numbers for that. As that becomes more recognized as a better way to grow because you're also creating customers with money to buy your products. Then you're gonna see a transition, you know, and we would hope as swiftly as possible, but it will be Perhaps evolutionary, depending on education again, and depending on politics. So this is something that all of our systems can start to have an effect on our culture, where every human being is is truly free, and um, able to develop to their fullest human potential.
2: All right. So, picture a website. Show we it. Tell everybody how to get the book for the umpteenth time.
1: Yay! Yes! Not the, um, it. Just the Give 10. it to your family and friends.
3: <laughs> and if you can't afford it, there's a free version available too. There you go.
2: What's the website?
3: www.cesj.org
2: And here's the free book of the it's on the screen. Here's the free version of it. Or you can just go to Amazon and send ten dollars to Bezos. And he will gladly send it <laughs> to you for uh, probably free of charge. For uh, however they get around that, anyways.
3: Yeah. Michael, Until he finds out what's in it, you mean?
2: Yeah, <laughs> send one to him. <laughs> Michael Don, appreciate it as always. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Steve. It's been great. And go
2: check out the shirt. Check check out the store and get your own. I would like to see them come out with some from magnet card magnets. I'll put that on the car tomorrow if there was on there. Hint,
1: oh, hint. okay. Okay. <laughs> I can, we can arrange that. I'll, I'll make a magic. public challenge instead. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. No, this, this is, uh, we can get all sorts of things available. So, car magnets, it is. Uh,
3: <laughs> thanks, no, whiskey guys. containers,
2: coffee cups, you name it. You know, there you go. All right. Well, thank you guys.